A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Jonathan Isabey, editor of Brexit Central. And it's a brilliant interview. We talk about Brexit, we talk about the role of Brexit Central, talk about some of the other things that he's done, working at Conservative Home, working at the Taxpayers' Alliance, about his own politics and where they came from. And it's a brilliant, wide-ranging and respectful discussion about Brexit. And uh, I first met Jonathan about 12 years ago. We reminisce about that early on, so I shan't ruin uh, that particular anecdote. Um, but it's, as always, just so refreshing to sit down with someone, whether you agree with them or not, and have a really good conversation about politics and why things matter to different people and uh, get a different perspective on the narrative of the day. And uh, he was a superb and thoughtful and reasonable guest. It was just great. It was, it, it, the time, as it so often does, completely ran away uh, with us. And I was uh, aware that I'd kept him for more than an hour, so uh, had to let him go. But could have easily done probably another two or three hours. And there's so many things that we didn't talk about. His love of Coronation Street, uh, his collection of Every Now, that's what I call music album, uh, and uh, the work he did on David Trimble's biography, as well as so many other things. Um, he also, well, he gives me an idea in this podcast, and I won't ruin what it is, but I'm definitely going to pick it up. And on the other side of this chat, I shall let you know another idea that he's got that I think we could all benefit from. Thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour so far. It's been so much fun. Um, I can't thank you. And people are so kind. So to all the people that I've met before and after, and to all the people who've come, thank you so much. Um, for, I hope you enjoyed the show, but for being so supportive and being so kind. Um, I'm in Leicester on the 15th of February, which is the day this goes out. So if you're listening to this today, oh, hang on. Of course it's today when you listen to this. If you're listening to this on Friday the 15th of February, I'm in Leicester tonight at the Sioux Townsend Theatre. And uh, from the 18th, I'm in the North East for four nights. I'm doing the North Allerton Forum on the 18th of February, the Darlington Hippodrome on the 19th of February, Barnard Castle at a place called the Whitham or the Witham on the 20th of February and on the 21st of February I'm at the Queen's Hall in Queen's Hall in Hexham Queen's Hall in Hexham so quite a few uh, coming up in the in the northeast the next live political party is on the 27th of February with Johnny Mercer then in March Stourbridge Stafford Cambridge Corby a load of London dates the South Bank uh, I'll do two nights at the South Bank, one night at the Leicester Square Theatre. I'm losing track of all these. And the Bristol, Bristol Hen and Chickens. Um, but check all those dates out on the website. I'm trying to remember all these. Mattford.com slash live. I shall leave you for now in the capable hands of Jonathan Isabel. I'm joined by Jonathan Isabel, editor of Brexit Central. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, Jonathan, we first met, and I'm not sure if you remember this, at the Labour Party conference, I think, in 2007. Sounds about right. Down in Bournemouth. And you, at the time, were known... I think you were working at the Telegraph at the time. I was. And you were known for doing a very, very good Tony Blair impression. Yeah. And I remember me and you... I remember someone saying, well, who does the best one? (laughs) And we both did ours, and they they all agreed that yours was better. And that, that has 
that that burn has has not diminished in the in the passing twelve years for me. Well, Matt, I'm deeply sorry if I caused you <laughs> any embarrassment by that anecdote being brought to light again. Uh, what can I say? I, I suppose the only thing to say, frankly, is you know to apologise to to recognise that you know the right decision wasn't taken at the, at the time. To to accept that the evidence that people thought was the case that you did a better impression turned out actually not to be the case. And I think the only thing you can do now, frankly, is resign and and I think the rest of us will move on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we had a first there because <laughs> Tony Blair, Tony Blair just gave us an apology. <laughs> oh man, it's so good. I mean, it was it was that something. I wasn't intending to ask this. Did you ever think of going into mimicry or comedy or anything like that? No, but I mean, if, if someone wanted, if someone wants to employ my services, I'd be delighted to talk to them. No, I mean, I I, I have always been a fan of mimicry and impressionists. Actually, yeah, yeah. As, as a kid in the eighties, you know, you'd watch. I, I loved watching Roy Bremner, um, Bobby Davro, those kinds of people. Yes. Um, you know, and I think. I mean, back in the late eighties, everybody everybody did a John Cole, the, the BBC political editor at the time, who came from Belfast and was in Westminster all the time, and you know, and and I think my first ever public impersonation before my voice broke uh, was in nineteen eighty nine when I did Margaret Thatcher at a school public speaking competition. Wow. Um, yeah, so I know it's, it's been a long-standing interest, and actually, I, at university, I studied linguistics and. Uh, have always been interested in you know, accents and dialects and the way people speak and stuff. So I've got quite a good ear for these things. Well, it's a good thing to be known for, and it's a, it's a pleasure to see you again. I know we've bumped into each other a couple of times in the intervening years, but uh, that was the first time I remember meeting. You now work for Brexit Central. Um, in terms of what Brexit Central is, I mean, it's, it's you and, and Matthew Taylor and a few others. Is it Matthew Taylor? Sorry. Um, <laughs> crikey. Um What's his name? Matthew Elliott. Sorry, who sorry. Ran Matthew, the, Matthew Elliott. Elliott ran the Vote Leave campaign. Oh, so Matthew, who am I thinking of as Matthew well, Taylor? Well, Matthew Taylor used to run the IPPR, and they used to be a Lib Dem MP ah, Matthew Taylor. Yes, that's right. Um, but no, Matthew Don't Elliott, Matthew who Elliott. ran the Vote Leave campaign back in 2016, after the, he, the victorious campaign yeah. uh, came to its glorious conclusion, uh, he wanted to set up a portal through which to keep the public, in particular the Brexit voting public, but everybody, um, informed day by day of what was going on, um, giving the running commentary on Brexit that the government said they weren't going to give, um, and indeed to keep making the positive case for why people voted to leave the European Union, and indeed to hold the government's feet to the fire where necessary in order to ensure it was delivered. So Matthew established it and asked me to uh, edit it, to, to run it, because you know, I'd known Matthew for nearly twenty years um, before he founded the Taxpayers Alliance, which I obviously worked for uh, earlier. And he, yeah, he, and obviously also having run Conservative Home with Tim Montgomery back in the late two thousands, uh, he thought I was ideally placed to to do this. So he, you know, we we set it up in the summer of twenty sixteen, just after the referendum, and went live in September twenty sixteen. And it's a relatively small team. I mean, Matthew is our editor at large, uh, but he's you know, not involved day to day editorially. That's that's my job with uh, with the help of some trusty deputies. So does it, it ensure it sees itself as as the continuity vote leave campaign? It's continuing the argument, or it's it's looking after that constituency of people with those sorts of ideas and that sort of tone. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not a continuity part of the campaign. I mean, it is a journalistic venture, and you know, I'm accredited as a, as a journalist in Parliament and spent a lot of time over there reporting on what's going on. But certainly the, the tenor of the website and what we do and our social media output is very much pushing the, the, the vote leave style message. Uh, certainly, you know, you know, there are other websites available if you want a more Nigel farage version of Brexit. Yes. Um, so what is the role of the organisation? It's journalistic, but is it is it to uh, put pressure on the government to, for instance, give a no-deal Brexit? Is it to inform the public just in general about Brexit? What is the, what is the aim of Brexit Central? Well, I mean... Our aim is to provide news, views, comment and analysis for people every day. We do a morning email. The, the staple of what we do yeah. is the, the morning email that goes out at half past eight every morning. You know, I'm up on my laptop before 6 a.m. every day putting stuff together with the help of my colleagues in order that people can go into work, uh, whether they're people working in Westminster who want this or general public uh, or indeed, um, you know, we, we've got a lot of uh, journalists, uh, a lot of diplomats, a lot of overseas readers actually who take an interest in all that's going on uh, to provide that full uh, rundown of everything that's going on each day, uh, to host opinion pieces by commentators, by politicians, by business people, by academics, other observers of what's going on, uh, to, to, to put the positive arguments for why we are leaving the European Union. And you know, there isn't a corporate line on uh, specifically whether we should accept the government's deal or not. I think it's fair to say if you look at uh, the tenor of the pieces we've run over the last couple of months, there's uh, more people who are concerned about the deal than who are in favour of it. Um, but, you know, we've always tried to make sure that uh, all voices from within, within the, the mainstream Brexiter community get heard. Just on the morning email... It's a relatively new phenomenon and actually quite a crowded marketplace. You've got all these different places. Uh, obviously, the Times Redbox is, is well-known. The Spectator does an evening and a morning one. Uh, Spoon, uh, set up by Jane Merrick, does, a, does a, an email. You do one. The New York Times is very popular. How do you stand out in the morning email market? I mean, we are unique. We're serving a unique purpose. We are focusing on the one issue. You didn't mention Politico Playbook by Jack Blanchard, which is absolutely brilliant a great addition to the morning email community. Um, uh, you know, we, we are trying to pull stuff together from all different outlets so that you get a, an overarching picture of all the Brexit news on any given morning. Um, and, you know, that, that no one else... Is, all those other emails you just talked about have all got different aspects or of policy to cover. Uh, you know, and th- there's... Although, obviously, at the moment, Brexit rather dominates. Well, Brexit is everywhere. I mean, I, I suppose it's more I, I, I meant in terms of, do you feel that you have to make it funny or particularly biting? Or do you think, you know, what are the rules on a good morning email? Is brevity important? You know, do pictures matter? Um, we're not particularly picture heavy. Um, and in fact, I say Politico Playbook, which I think is the best of the general emails, is completely picture free. It's just kind of... It's facts and information. You know, what I'm trying to do each morning is to keep people informed, to explain what's going on. Um, You know, our readers, obviously, some of our readers are obviously people in Westminster who are heavily involved in everything that's going on. But a lot of our readers are the general public out there who want to make sense of what's going on and who are confused by 
some of the mixed messages that are coming out from the government, frankly. Uh, so I'm trying to cut through that and explain what's going on. And so, for example, today, today, the day we're recording this, there's a load of votes in Parliament later on. I tried to, in the morning email today, to say, well, here's the different amendments and what they all might mean. Uh, and in terms of your relationship with politicians and the government, does Theresa May ever seek your advice? Um... No, Theresa May has never sought my advice, Uh, and I think so. I I think actually I fell off her Christmas card list last year. I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I'm told it was not a deliberate snub. Um, But no, look, we've we've got lines of communication with all kinds of people, uh, inside and outside Parliament, uh, on different sides of the the Brexit debate. And you know, I've been in and around Westminster for twenty years in various guises. So. I do know people on all sides of the debate, and I think in the main, uh, I've always kept civil relations with people on all sides of the debate. I think that's incredibly important in all of this, because actually, once Brexit has happened, um, you know, there's still a country uh, to run, and people involved in politics need to be, you know, working together for the greater good of the country, and... If that doesn't sound too worthy. No, no, I think most people would agree with that. Um, So once Brexit's delivered then, what's the role of Brexit Central? I mean, that's a very good question. Um, You know, Brexit Central, I don't think, will go on forever. Um, What, I say, the aim of the site and our social media output was to keep people informed throughout the Brexit process and to certainly keep together all those who had been arguing for Brexit uh, during the course of the negotiations... Um, but I think, you know, once the UK is no longer a member of the European Union, that common thread that has bound together all the people that have written for us and worked with us over uh, the two and a half years thus far, kind of disappears. And in effect, you know, you will get back to, dare I say, normal politics. And, you know, there will be debates to be had about what we do with the powers that have been taken back from Brussels and brought to Westminster, and rightly so. But you know, the, the kind of Labour leavers who've uh, worked with us uh, would have a very different view of how to use those powers than some of the Conservative leavers or the Lib Dem leavers, there are some, or indeed the leavers of no fixed abode. Uh, we are recording this, uh, as you say, uh, on a day when John Burke is, at the moment, as we speak, currently deciding which amendments to put to the floor of the House of Commons. It is also Valentine's Day today. Mm. And you tweeted this morning, roses are red. I wish my passport were blue. It's 43 days until we leave the EU. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, are blue passports something that you're passionate about? I'm not particularly passionate about blue passports. That was a bit of fun, it has to be said. Um, I think I did a similar rhyme on Valentine's Day last year, which uh, was a, a technical reference to the tariffs on importing flowers. Um, but... Do you remember so, what it was? Um, I think as of last year, it was roses are red, violets are blue, but there's an eight and a half percent tariff while we're still in the EU. Oh, that's brilliant. Something like that. Um, no, so no, that, that, that's that was. I'm not particularly passionate about the colour of my passport. That's obviously a an iconic issue that some yeah. people get very excited about. Um, it, it's it's the. No, I'm I, I'm a Brexiteer because I believe in the UK having sovereign control of its own destiny and. Know, being able to hold accountable the people who make those decisions rather than them being made in a remote European capital by people who you don't elect, who you can't get rid of, um, who, who, who do not necessarily have the UK's best interests at heart.
In terms of Brexit Central, then, and, and obviously there are sort of competing views within the organisation, although I imagine you're all pro-Brexit, do you have these discussions about what sort of Brexit you would prefer? Um, Was it not that sort of place? I mean, no, certainly with the people who are writing for us on a, on a regular basis, they have different views as to what it should be, and you know, we are effectively promoting that debate. And no, there are some people who take the view that we should go for a no-deal Brexit and, you know, it should be a case that let's leave on the 29th of March with no deal, let the EU come and negotiate with us. Uh, there are others who clearly would like a deal to be done um, and, and that is clearly a matter for debate. Although what I would say is I think over the last last week or two, uh, I think the, the behaviour of some of the leading lights in the European Union is actually pushing a lot of people more towards the no-deal end of the spectrum. And I think you, you that, that comes across actually in the question time audiences we've seen over the last few weeks. And I think the, the remarks of Donald Tusk about the special place in hell... Um, the that other was day, about people who didn't have a plan for Brexit, wasn't it? That wasn't about people who voted for it. People have been it, very sensitive about that, and it seems odd that people who worked for a campaign that talked about Turkish people in a particular way are now very sensitive about Donald Tusk talking about the fact they haven't got a plan. I mean, if you look at what Vote Leave did uh, and in what Business for Britain did before Vote Leave existed, uh, there was a thousand-page document called Change or Go, which set out a whole load of different ideas of what needed to be done. Um, so it, it's not true to say that no one had thought of what happens next. I think what was completely irresponsible at the time of the referendum was the fact that David Cameron did not allow the civil service to do any work on what happens if the British public vote to leave the European Union. There was that kind of arrogance that you know the, the British people are going to do as I say, therefore we don't need to plan for the eventuality that clearly in a 50-50 binary referendum, yes. one, one of those sides could happen. And I think that was deeply unfortunate. But were you offended by what Donald Tusk said? Because I, I think at the moment in politics, and this is true, left, right and centre, people like to be offended and they like to pretend that they're awfully hurt by these things. And looking at it objectively, it's bad politics for him to say it. It's not really that offensive, is it? I think it was totally unnecessary. I mean, the, what it, the thing that got me is that it wasn't an... I, I might have understood it if it had been an off-the-cuff remark. Yeah. But it was written down. You could <laughs> see, watching the press conference, he was looking at a script. He had written out, or someone had written out for him, presumably in English, this particular phrase that he then read out at the press conference. And I just think it was... Utterly unnecessary. And as I say, you know, regardless of the minutiae of how it's interpreted, I think a lot of people in Britain just thought, who, who does he think he is? Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm hearing this anecdotally from MPs who are talking to people on the doorstep every weekend, that more people, you know, even Remain voting uh, people, are, are just thinking, let's just get out, cut our ties, because the, these, this, is, this is not something I can back so so what sort of brexit would you like Look, i would like i would like there to be a deal I've, yes. I've always thought that this ought to be done amicably and that's that's one of the reasons i just thought that donald tusk was so unnecessary in what he said the other day and you know other comments that have been made in, in other um, parts of brussels at various points over the last couple of years because at the end of the day clearly the uh, the european union is our closest physical neighbor and uh, uh, to, to part on good terms should be the right thing to do. I think the problem is, though, 
from the European Union perspective, they do see this as an existential threat to their political project. And therefore, they don't want it to be seen to be an easy or good thing or positive thing to be able to do. And therefore, the deal that currently is on offer is one that is deeply unsatisfactory. And obviously, the Irish backstop element of it is something which would uh, be inescapable from without their permission, which I think is unprecedented in the history of international treaties. And, and the cost of leaving that is a hard border in Ireland. Well, and is that a price you worth say paying? that. You, you say that. Currently, Who's... no technological solution exists. You don't need technological solutions. You use existing administrative processes uh, in terms of customs declarations, all of which are being done online these days. No, nobody on any side has any desire or intention of erecting a border in Ireland. No, the, the question which needs to be put again and again, and, <clears throat> and you, I mean, you spoke to Tony Blair on this podcast the other day, and I can't remember it, whether it was you he said to or someone else, but he said in terms, if there is no deal, there will definitely be a hard border in Ireland. Well, the question to him is, who is going to build it? Because the British government have said they won't, the Irish government have said they won't. Is the EU going to force the Irish government to build it? That's the only scenario in which I could see that happening, which would suggest to me that the European Union wouldn't in that capacity have Ireland's best interests at heart. Part of the concern is that Brexit is being handled by a chaotic government that gives contracts to ferry companies that don't possess them, then revokes the contract when it's exposed in public, that this is not being done correctly. I don't think the public have a great deal of faith that they can take the government's word at face value when they say there's a guarantee of no border. Well, I, I'm not going to defend everything the government has done over the last couple of years because I think elements of it have been quite chaotic. I think elements, you know, there have been huge parts of it where decisions simply haven't been made. I mean, the the contents of the, the Chequers white paper last summer, really, you know, that white paper could have been brought out in a matter of weeks after the original Lancaster House speech back at the very beginning of this process in January 2017. And and if it had been based on the Lancaster House speech, I think Theresa May would have held her party together and it would have been a far smoother ride, actually. So in terms of, you know, you're a committed Brexiteer, has there been anything since the referendum, maybe the government's handling of it or whatever, where you thought, actually, this this does seem quite difficult and I'm not entirely sure we've made the right decision? Or do you think, you know what, any price is worth paying and, and in the end it'll be fine? At no point have I thought this is the wrong decision. In fact, regularly I thought this makes me all the more convinced it was the right decision. You know, I think you look at what has been going on in, in Europe, uh, the fact that you know, you've, from the speeches from Jean-Claude Juncker, uh, Macron, other figures, leading figures in the EU, you know, I mean, at the time of the referendum, people were saying, no, there's a plan to create a European army. Nick Clegg and others said this was a f- fantasy. Well, you know, now you've got European leaders specifically using the phrase European army. It is what they want. You know, the European Union is not a static beast. Uh, the, the idea that voting remain in 2016 was a status quo option is absolute nonsense because the EU is an ever-changing organisation. And as we've seen over the years, every time it changes, it becomes a bit more federalist, a bit more centralist, a bit more power taken to the centre, uh, more power taken away from nation states. Uh, and, I mean, to be and, fair and, to David Cameron, the deal that he got was uh, not just the, the handbrake on... 
uh, on uh, on immigration. But he did get an opt out on ever closer union, and and that was that got lost in the debate. It was seen that he got nothing. But I always thought that was quite a significant agreement to get from the European Union at that time. I, I think it was pretty cosmetic, and I I don't think he was really asking for a great deal in that renegotiation. He he, you know, it was the kind of the, the kind of essay crisis deal where he he got what he thought he'd get away with in order to to get through, and you know, as it was. It didn't work, but I mean, I've I've been watching the European Union from afar throughout my adult life, throughout my well, you can go back to my teenage years, and perhaps we'll talk about how I got interested in politics in the first place. But every time there's been a new treaty, more power has been accrued to Brussels. And I, I remember having a conversation with someone, with various people, back in the early '90s, at the time of Maastricht, when I was. Mm. Uh, still at school and but getting interested in politics and someone said oh well, Jonathan as long as we stay in the European Union we can reform it from within and I thought that was a lovely idea but 25 years later it simply hasn't happened because the EU is a political project which does believe in ever closer union which is something the British people do not agree with and in that sense it's, it's fair it's fair on them for the UK to say look this isn't for us you get on with what you want to do Let's part amicably. You can, you know, we'll we'll stop being the brake on your your plans for further centralisation, frankly, and let you get on with it. In terms of its effect on the Conservative Party, you're a Conservative guy. Um, do you do you feel that the Tory Party has been too obsessed by this question, or is it fundamental? Is, is this bigger than party politics, and, and we're absolutely right to address it and to be obsessed with it and to deal with it? Or do you think actually there are bigger things we could have been getting on with, and this is once again tearing the Tory party to shreds. I mean, certainly the issue is bigger than party politics. In the, I mean, There was a survey not so long ago which showed that people's I, people were more strong about their feelings of identifying as a Brexiteer or a Remainer as compared with their party affiliations. Yes. But I think that's also a comment on people being less loyal to political parties these days. I think yeah. people are far more consumer-oriented in how they vote at different elections and so on. Um Look, this is an issue which clearly has been festering for a very long time. I just mentioned Maastricht, and obviously yeah. at the time uh, there was Euroscepticism in the Tory party that, that grew over time. Um, but, I mean, you know, you saw... No, it, it, no this is a real issue. Um, if you look over the, the, the period of the last 20 years, you know, each European election that came along... You know, UKIP got an ever greater proportion of the vote to the point that they won the European elections in 2014. Uh, David Cameron arguably had to promise the referendum in 2015 in order to neutralise some of the support that otherwise would have gone or had been going to UKIP. And people say, well, that's him just managing his party. But actually, the, the fact that a party won a national election on this pure issue does show that people did pre- feel and do feel pretty strongly about it, it did, and therefore it was, it was an issue that needed addressing. Protest vote election, low turnout. Most of the country wasn't immensely animated about the European Union. I totally get the point and I've, I do have a lot of sympathy with where Cameron was at the time. Um, but here's the thing. But still. And, but here's something. But, you know, people like me have, have been saying for, for a very long time that you know, the European Union gets into every single area of British life and X percent of laws are made in Brussels, whether it be 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, you can take, take your statistics, use which one you want. And 
throughout that time, the, the enthusiastic Europhiles have said, don't be so ridiculous. You know, Europe is this kind of lovely, uh, benevolent project uh, where we just go over to Brussels and talk to each other and, and work together, a cooperation, and it's nonsense to suggest that we're being controlled from Brussels. And yet now, now that we're leaving, those same people saying, well, this is the most complicated thing we've ever done because it affects every single area of our life. Well, that is the point that some of us have been making for quite a long time. Well, I mean, there's a difference, isn't there, between between being involved in, a, in an organisation, a supranational organisation where you, you make laws collectively, but you agree with what those laws are, and a, a supranational organisation where you disagree with those laws, and that's the problem. But look, the European Union is an organisation where the Commission is unelected. Um, you know, yes, there is you know some national input from national governments into what decisions are made. But you know, the veto has been given up in dozens and dozens of areas. You know, we can be overruled easily. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, that is simply not for me. And I, and yeah. you know, talking about that unelected nature of it, I rem- you know remember the. I can't remember what all the questions were, but Tony Benn famously used to talk about the oh, questions yeah. you need to you, ask of people in power. How, how did you, they get there? How do I remove you? How yeah. do I remove you? Are you accountable? And so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly important. And I, in, in, it's, in, a, in a sense, it's a great shame that he wasn't around for the referendum in 2016 because he would have very much been on the same side as me. And, and perhaps Jeremy Corbyn. It would be interesting to see if Corbyn would have been emboldened by the presence of his uh, mentor. It's a really interesting point. I mean, C- Corbyn you know, was very much a disciple of Tony Benn. If you look at Jeremy Corbyn's voting record in Parliament since 1983, he voted against every European treaty all the way through until Lisbon in 2008. Five, yeah, right. um, and obviously since he became Labour leader, he's been constrained in what he's able to do and say. Uh, on those issues, um, but it's uh, you know it, again John McDonnell has taken a similarly anti-EU line, um, and 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 therein lies the the massive problem that the Labour Party has, that it has a leadership that is instinctively very hostile to the European Union, a parliamentary party that is massively dominated by Remain supporters, but then actually out in the country there were some millions of people who vote Labour who also voted Leave, who feel relatively unrepresented by the existing Labour Party leadership. Um, and yet the, the, the talk is that if there's going to be a breakaway, it's going to be of uh, Uber Remainers uh, from Labour. Um, I'm not quite sure who's out there in the public to vote for that party. Uh, well... 48% perhaps of, uh, of the public might potentially But, but they're not. No, no, this is, this is the myth. So... The 2017 election, which was supposedly the Brexit election, I mean, in a sense, it wasn't the Brexit election because both Labour and the Conservatives said, we accept the referendum result, we're going to get on with Brexit. And I think that that the electorate therefore thought, OK, Brexit sorted, let's look a bit further down the manifesto and see what we like about the different parties. But the, 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 the three major parties fighting the 2017 election on a platform of reversing or blocking Brexit, the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party and the SNP, all saw their vote share go down. So this is an utter myth that there's a 48% well, out there who want to vote for a Remain party. The SNP is still, by a huge stretch, the most popular party in Scotland. So there's still a big constituency in Scotland for what they're doing. The other dimension in Scottish politics, of course, is the Union of the UK rather than the Union of the European Union. And that was partly why the Scottish Tories did so well this time. 
Labour's vote at the last election, there were numerous studies done to this, was hugely inflated by the perception that they were an anti-Brexit party. Massively so. Why else would Knightsbridge vote Labour? I mean, it, it was a curious election and there were some odd results, but call me old-fashioned, but if you read the Labour Party yeah, but manifesto... They don't, but people don't. Come on. People like me and you read manifestos because we're those sorts of people, but the public don't read manifestos. Do they? And there was a perception, and, and you know, Labour admitted themselves as constructive ambiguity where they're facing both ways, but certainly at the last election, the perception was that if you wanted to stop Brexit, you voted Labour. I, I'm, I'm not sure that was true. I, I mean, clearly the, the social care issue was a massive election issue on, on account of how Theresa May handled that. Um, and, you know, th- that, that in itself will have, sure, you know, in a, pl- a place like Kensington, I'm sure would have made people wonder whether the, the Tory party's policy on that was one that was compatible with their own feelings. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a curious election, but I would still maintain that it wasn't really a Brexit election on the basis that, say, both main parties went into it saying we respect the referendum result um, and, and you know, people expected their politicians yes. to, to get on with doing what they said they'd do. I, mean, I, I totally accept that <clears throat> the 48% really is not the 48, as, as numerous polls have shown that. Oh, absolutely not. It's more like 22 or something oh, like if that. If that. So it's, it, the, the Remain constituency is, is broken down, even though Remain now leads in the polls, given a, given a choice. But not well, by well, hold on. Remain led in the polls the day before the referendum. Absolutely. So it's um, not... So it's not. <laughs> you can't take that as... But nevertheless, polls show that Remain is currently more popular. But in terms of... There isn't the same hard remain core that there is on the Leave side, frankly, when it comes to voting. Um, Maybe not, but then maybe that's because actually uh, it's quite difficult to be hugely enthusiastic about this bureaucratic project that is the European Union. And I think there's a sense of fair play that we voted. Oh, absolutely. Even people who voted remain, even passionate people who voted remain, still think, well, actually, you've had a result, you have to deliver it. Yeah, I mean, literally, on, on Breakfast Central Day, we've run a piece by a chap called Harry Todd, who voted Remain, um, but is now working with the Leave Means Leave group, because he said, as a Democrat, you know, we had a referendum, and you're duty-bound uh, to, to deliver on that result. And, and I mean, I've thought, you know, if, if the referendum result genuinely were blocked or reversed... I, th- I mean, what kind of message does that send to the to the wider public? You know, we we are a democratic country. We tell people the whole point of having elections and referendums or an extension of that is to give you the power to de- make decisions. Um, and you know, we absolutely should not and must not resort to extra parliamentary means and civil disobedience and so on to, to make points. But you know, if if you have a democratic process which the politicians then say, well, that's all very well, but we don't like the results, so we're going to ignore it. The confidence in that process breaks down. I think, I think for, for the purposes of social cohesion and future confidence in the system, it would be horrific. But if you're <clears throat> having another referendum, which is in itself a democratic exercise, how is that undemocratic? Because you haven't delivered the result of the first one yet. But people have changed their minds, they've got the right to them. You don't just have, have one election and stick to it. We have elections every sometimes two years. We were told by everybody that this was a once-in-a-generation decision, that the leaflet that the government spent £10 million of our money sending around to every household in the country said, the government will implement your decision. Yeah. If they don't do that, I say I think confidence in the system would completely break down. 
Look, even if people are asked again, they can go back out and vote leave. But you've got... But you, you, that just becomes the never-ending. You know, wh- wh- when do you stop? Do you, do you, if, 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 if would the, Leave if, have stopped if, it was, if they were on the side of the 48? Do you think Nigel Farage would have accepted it and gone home? I think it would have been impossible to call for another referendum virtually the next week, uh, which is what the Remain side have done in, in this circumstance. Um, the, say it was a once-in-a-generation once decision. Uh, it needs to be implemented... Because that's what people voted for, and they need to have. It needs to be implemented, not not least in order to retain confidence in the system. And then, you know, in a, if in a few years' time, people want to campaign for the UK to rejoin the European Union, then you know they can. And good luck with that, because I think they'll need it. <laughs> I think I agree. I mean, I think it's very hard for. Um those of us who vote remain, who are who are you know believe in democracy, and I think you do have to deliver these things. And I think there's all sorts of contradictions at the moment. I don't think there should be another referendum on Scottish independence, but I accept that Brexit changes that, and maybe you know that that completely changes the context. So then, on the other hand, I can't say, well, you can't have a referendum on Scottish independence, but I want one on the EU because I didn't get my way. And I think you have to really think carefully about, as you say, the messages you send about democracy and and. Frankly, trust in politics and democracy itself. That said, if you can't get a majority on the floor of the House of Commons for a deal and, and Parliament has the legal right to decide, how else do you break that deadlock? Well, we'll, we'll see over the coming weeks. I mean, do you think we'll have another general election? Because people are already talking about a May election. I'm not convinced there will be another election uh, that soon because, I mean, we saw the poll in the Times the other day that it would just create pretty much the same numbers that we've got at the moment. I don't think it would um, you know, be particularly revolutionary in, in terms of creating a particularly new set of parliamentary arithmetic. I think I think it's incumbent on all parliamentarians to remember the manifestos on which they were elected, which were that the UK leaves the European Union to the Conservative MPs in particular, uh, the manifesto specifically stated no deal is better than a bad deal. And if you think that this is a bad deal, then by definition, no deal is better than the bad deal that you, you say is currently on offer. Um, it's it, uh, And similarly, the, the Labour MPs who also voted on a, on a uh, who were elected on platforms of respecting the referendum result need to just take a step back and remember that. And I, and I say it's interesting. I'm, I spoke to a very well-connected, well-plugged-in Labour source a few days ago who said to me that over the last few weeks the number of Labour MPs who are just getting the message from people on the doorstep that they want out of this and that they think the European Union is taking the UK for a fool and that, uh, you know, to to block this or to delay it would be utterly the wrong thing to do. And I think you saw with the the voting on the amendments uh, a couple of weeks ago Interestingly, some some Labour MPs voting, uh, you know, with the government in the division lobbies who had not done so before. I yeah. think I think there there is a bit of a movement out there actually. Uh, so you, you you hinted at a previous question about getting involved in politics young, and that's something that I can identify and, uh, and sympathise with. How old were you when you first started taking notice of politics, and what was it that got you into it? I was eleven. It was November. Quite late. It was <laughs> it was November nineteen eighty nine. And it was the day that they started televising the House of Commons, which I just got utterly hooked by. Yeah. Um, 
and and it's interesting because that there, there was obviously a big debate at the time as to whether or not cameras should be allowed in Parliament. Yeah, yeah. And indeed, I still meet some MPs. There is a small number of MPs now who still think it was the wrong thing to do, because it it, it becomes a show. It becomes a distraction. Uh, all, all kinds of reasons that they might claim. But no, for me, it's absolutely vital that uh, public institutions are open to. Uh, to be seen and to, to be seen at work, and obviously television is a is a medium that, that can do that. So yeah, I, I just got hooked on it, and I, I I'd I always say that my interest in football waned as my interest in politics grew because back back in kind of eighty six, eighty seven, eighty nine, I collected all the Panini football stickers, yeah. and you know used to be able to tell you who all the players were and the stats and the facts about all the football teams and everything. Um, and then suddenly this part of my brain was able to be used to learn constituencies and majorities <laughs> and who was minister for this, that and the other. And, um, yeah, I just I got fascinated by it. And obviously it was a fascinating time because you literally that, that was the month when you, or you just had the stalking horse challenge against Thatcher. And it was basically the, the, I, my, it was the first year of uh, my interest in politics was Thatcher's last year in office. Uh, and then obviously in 1990, her replacement and John Major came in and then all the, the, the Maastricht debates yeah. um, came up and, and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I, I got hooked relatively young. And and I suppose I I instinctively was sympathetic to the Conservatives from the fact that my parents both voted Conservative and... But have they been activists at all or involved? No, no. and you know, I, I only, I say, so I, I got involved uh, a couple, of, not not exactly when I was eleven, but a, a, slightly, a few years later when I was a teenager um, in the Tories. And and I suppose in one sense, I was uh, at that stage, I was politically probably more of a kind of carbon copy of my mother, uh, kind of who I suppose is an archetypal Daily Mail reader. Or should I say, Dacre Daily Mail reader? It's changed a little bit in the last yes. few months. Um, and, then, you know, and then my political views matured, and I went to university. And I think it's fair. I, I went up to York, um, I, so I didn't study politics. I did languages and linguistics, but spent a lot of time doing student politics and student media. And I, you know, at university, my political outlook, I suppose, became more libertarian. To, to, to be frank, that that was the kind of direction of travel I, I went in and would still kind of identify in, in that kind of arena. Because libertarianism is something we, we've touched on a little bit here. We had Sophie Jarvis on from the Adam Smith Institute mm. recently and we talked about it with Paul Nuttall many years ago when he was uh, I think deputy leader. Playing for Stoke. <laughs> well, it was even before that. It was uh, I think it was pre-Stoke that I had him on. Libertarianism is something that is a, a kind of a not really explored in British politics. It's, it's not seen in the same way that capitalism and socialism or conservatism and liberalism are. It's it's kind of its own little island. Yeah, I mean, I would I would suggest that libertarianism is at the you know, on the right of the political spectrum. Although it's interesting, I always think there's a huge abuse of the term right wing or or very right wing or far right, whatever you want to call it, because it means lots of different things to different people. Um, far right is, I suppose, a pejorative term. Far right is a pejorative term, and actually, most people who are defined as far right are actually national socialists, yes. who I would define as far left. Um, anyway, that's a, that's a, a matter for but debate. That's about, you know, ideology being a circle, not a line, isn't it? I yeah. Suppose that you... um, but I, you know, my my left right political comes, if you like, I, I think of as 
uh, you know, state involvement in the economy, uh, and therefore, you know, as you go rightwards, you have, you know, more, uh, more power to the individual, you know, less state involvement, less state ownership, lower taxes, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, and, and I suppose in my libert- in defining myself as a libertarian, I suppose it's kind of wanting the government out of the boardroom and out of the bedroom, if that makes sense, yeah. as, a, as a kind of summing up of, of a kind of political <laughs> value set. So, it's, because it touches on liberalism a little bit, doesn't it? When it, when, and I suppose um, something Savage Office was saying was that the Adam Smith Institute is very pro-immigration, mm. which isn't seen as a classically right-wing stance, or certainly not a conservative stance. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's a very interesting debate um, about that in the kind of world of right-wing think tanks at the moment, and, and different people taking very different views and you know I, I don't think I mean, personally I'm you know, not hostile to immigration at all uh, it, it may not surprise you to learn that the, the original Mr Isabey was not an Anglo-Saxon he was actually <laughs> a French Huguenot seeking refuge in Kent in about 1700 or so um, you know but in, in on the immigration issue I think it's important that you know there is um, you know, there, there are balances to be struck about rights and responsibilities and, you know, an acknowledgement of the impact on public services that goes with that and ensuring that those, those balances are struck. Uh, one of the things that you set up, which is a, a cause very close to my heart, was Save Election Night. Ah, yes. Is it still going? It was a Facebook group, wasn't it, really? It was a campaign to keep the counts on the night themselves rather than do them the following day. Exactly. Back in 2009, I heard tell that the returning officers were ganging up together to try and make the counts happen on, a, on the Friday because we obviously were expecting an election in the spring of 2010. And you know, you, you'll know people who work behind the scenes on... The TV election programs. Indeed, yeah. You know, I my first job was at the BBC back in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands, working as a researcher at the BBC. And you know, the, the planning for those programs happens for months, if not years, in advance. And, and one of the big things is where, you know, where do the cameras need to be? When are the counts happening? Yes. And so I was working at Conservative Home at the time, but heard from friends uh, in the broadcast media that there were these plots to do the counting on the Friday morning, which was concerning them from a practical point of view of having an election-like programme to run. Yep. But as soon as I heard it, it concerned me as someone who thinks that, you know, if people are taking the trouble to go and vote, which I hope they do, and I've yeah. certainly never not voted in any election I've had the chance to do so, I think if, they take, if people are taking the trouble to vote, you need to take the trouble to count it and, and get a result out. And, and those election nights are... Kind of a uh, well, I think we called it at the time a kind of carnival of democracy. Yes, and you know it, it's really important to link w- what you've done during the day to what happens overnight. And I, I think also, you know, increasingly, you know, some people had concerns about security of the ballot. If you're kind of having to store millions and millions of ballot papers and not count them till the next day. Um, when I always understood the point of people counting votes who've been at polling stations all day are tired but then you just have different people counting the votes yeah of course you can um and it loses the adrenaline of the day like it's such a big deal to elect your government oh completely don't say we're gonna have this huge exercise you know what we'll wait until tomorrow to find out what happened absolutely so anyway so when when we discovered in 2009 that this was happening i i I really did just set it up as a facebook group save general election night and got on board um 
from the get-go, Tom Harris, who at the time was a Labour yeah. MP, uh, Mark Pack from Liberal Democrat Voice, that, that website. And we, we launched it literally with editorials on Conservative Home yeah. from Tom Harris on uh, Labour Labor websites and on Lib Dem Voice, basically as a cross-party initiative saying we think that we should have votes uh, counted overnight. And um, it kind of... It, grew in support over a matter of weeks and Sky News officially endorsed it and you know a lot of MPs you know obviously got talked about on the floor of the House of Commons yeah uh, the, the speaker John Burko uh, basically gave his backing to it uh, and then in very early 2010 there was an amendment passed to some piece of constitutional legislation which basically said you have to count on the night unless there's a very good reason and if there is you've got to set it out in advance so we we kind of we well we changed the law actually. Good on you. And and I think that's important because actually if you look over, over the last you know, twenty or thirty years, more and more counts had been happening on Thursday night. Yes. I mean, I suspect you like me occasionally watch BBC Parliament reruns of old general elections <laughs> yeah, on Bank yeah. Holiday Mondays. Yes. And uh, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, you know, there there were still quite a few counts that did happen on the Friday morning. Um, twenty ten was actually going to be the first time. Um, when all of Northern Ireland counted on the Thursday night, because uh, in in the past they, they had generally waited till the Friday, so Northern Ireland was showing the way forward of doing it on the night. And whereas you know a lot of returning officers in England were trying to go backwards. Anyway, we we stopped that happening, and general election night was saved. Congratulations on behalf of all listeners to this podcast. I'm sure uh, we're all very grateful for that. Uh, in terms of those. Um, BBC Parliament reruns of general election nights. They're amazing, particularly the ones that you, you were alive for and that you remember. Are there any particular favourites that you have? Um, I mean, I, I've got, I, of course, I worked on the 2001 BBC general election night. I, I was a, my first job was as a researcher at the BBC between 99 and 2003, and in the political research unit at Westminster in the Westminster newsroom, and so. You know, I was behind the scenes on the 2001 general election night and did stuff on local Brilliant. election nights at the time, which was, you know, as someone you know who has, had been following politics for, for my you know, whole teenagehood, uh, <laughs> to be involved in that was amazing. And, and actually, that, that reminds me that actually, as I say, those things are planned for months and years in advance, and you actually have to have rehearsals of them. I don't know if you've ever been involved in any no, of those. I I'd love to see one. I mean, it... it, it, it used to be tremendous fun because you basically at the BBC you would and they still do I'm sure have to rehearse different scenarios so somebody creates a set of results and you know you do several runs of the program as live um, with these results feeding through and and of course they have to do lots of um, fake interviews and things as well for the program so going back to where we started you know, given that I was known for being able to do my mimicry, <laughs> um, when we were doing some of these rehearsals, literally, I'd, you know, I'd be sat there with Jeremy Paxman or David Dimbleby, you know, in some character. <laughs> wow, brilliant! So, so actually, on, the, on in two thousand and one, there was there was a scenario rehearsed where the Tories lost, funnily enough. <laughs> and if, if if you remember, William Hague had had campaigned with the slogan. We want to be in Europe, but not run, run by. by Europe. Um, and anyway, so in, in the rehearsal where the Tories lost, which was frightfully prescient, yeah. um, there, there was a kind of a scene where I, we, we did the kind of William Hague comes out to address the nation. And it was, I, I did, uh, we want to be 
in the Conservative Party, but not running <laughs> the Conservative Party. Um, yes. Brilliant. And I dare say there is somewhere in the BBC archives, never ever to be broadcast, footage of all the yes. rehearsals, which obviously I'm sure they would never ever release. But you've got um, to write all this stuff down for whenever you do your memoirs. Yeah. Because time will erode all these wonderful memories. What a cool thing to have done. No, it was tremendous. And um, But I say that was the only general election night I worked on. Um, I remember going... Well, the, well, the abiding memory I remember... It's amazing what you remember. Obviously, the campaign was basically Prescott hitting a bloke, and that was it, because yeah. everything else was quite dull. But I remember William Hague resigning as leader of the Tory party outside the old Conservative and headquarters. Do you, know, do you know, Joe was actually, I was asleep when that happened. I, no. I, I had... So, I'd basically been, you know, working throughout the day, throughout the night, and it must have been at about, you know, half past six in the morning, I said to someone, can I just grab an hour's kip in a dressing room or something yeah. at the old BBC television centre where it was all happening? And they said, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Anyway, like 15 minutes later, knock on the door, <laughs> William Hague's just resigned, get up. Fuck it up. He was, I remember going to that, because it was on old um, Smith Square. Yeah, which is Tory now quarters. the European Union office. It's the European Union that bought the old Tory yeah. headquarters, which I thought was an amazing piece of, basically, sort trolling. of pr- property trolling. But that tree that was outside, I remember Hague being stood next to that, and that tree for me has real sort of political significance. And obviously the building where Thatcher waved out the top, yeah, you know, the famous yeah, tree yeah, yeah. after, uh, after, after um, 87. So there we are. Wonderful reminiscing about um, about general elections and about BBC Parliament in general, which I watch all the time. Um, you've had some other roles as well. Conservative Home, which really was set by Paul Goodman and... Um, no, it was set up by Tim Montgomery. By Tim Montgomery and then Paul Goodman... Uh, well, Paul Goodman came in it, once I was there. Um, and he's now the editor. Tim Tim has moved on. But no other party's been able to replicate the quality of that website where it's an independent, journalistic... Uh, it has blogs and all sorts of... Loads of different voices. The quality of it, the insight. Why hasn't... Labour tried, and they'd set... Well, well Labour supporters tried Labour Home and then Labour Hame, which was a Scottish version, as you say, Lib Dem voice. No other part of the spectrum has been able to replicate the quality of Conservative Home. And is that because... Only conservatives perhaps could do something like that. What what is the reason? And and it continues to this day to be such a, a such a brilliant source of information about the party. I and mean, I think there was a bit of a sense. I mean, I, it's very kind what you said about it. And I say I ran it with Tim. Tim deserves the credit for founding it and the idea. And I was there for three years between 08 and eleven. So the kind of run up to the twenty ten election, then the first year of the, yeah. the coalition. Um, I think there was a thinking at the time that the particularly the Labour Party, was far more controlling from the centre and didn't like people having their own independent voices and that it, it was harder in, in, in Labour to, to do that. And I suppose at, the, at, the t- at that time, you know, Labour were in government, whereas the Conservatives were in opposition and it's far more easy to think freely when you're in opposition than when you're in government, I suppose. Um, but you know, it's, it, as, a, as, a, as a site, it, it was and remains an invaluable part of the blogosphere. And, of course, I I went to Conservative Home having been at the Telegraph. I was on the Telegraph diary for five years. Yeah. Um, and I th- I think I I certainly claim that I was the first, first journalist to leave a national newspaper to go and work in the partisan blogosphere back oh, in 2008. Because, yeah, yeah. um, I mean, the, I think that there had been several others who had who had gone from national newspapers to work for 
websites like Politics Home, for instance. But so it's, I was the first journalist to, to go into the kind of parties and blogosphere, if you like. And then I was the first blogger, by that definition, to be recognised by the House of Commons authorities as a journalist. Um, oh, with I a was, lobby pass. Yeah, or? and I, so in that sense, I was something of a trailblazer. And you know, now it's and you know, I'm in that position again at Brexit Central as being a running a, a website with an agenda, but recognised as a journalist. But now there are many people in that. Evolve um, politics have a parliamentary pass, a, a lobby pass. Are they? Is that right? Uh, I think so. I, um, Guido certainly do, yeah. and uh, the the kind of I think um, so. This is la- all your la- fault. Labour list do. Oh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just it's it's the, the way things have evolved, and the, I mean, I the arguments I had um, back in it would have been about two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I think this would have happened. You know, they said, oh well, if if we let you in, we have to let everyone in, and I said, well. You don't. It's still your decision as the parliamentary authorities as to whom you recognise. You know, you don't let every single journalist on every single local newspaper in the country come to Parliament. You just have to make judgments as to, you know, who's got a readership that's appropriate, who's to be taken seriously. And, you know, and I came, having done political writing for The Telegraph before, I I had a reputation that preceded me that I was respectable and reliable, I hope. Um, And anyway, they, they made a decision and accepted me i wonder if could i as a podcaster get a, a lobby pass as a political podcaster i don't see I, why would you I, couldn't would I, try how much does it cost well that i mean that, that's the thing the, 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 the it doesn't actually cost anything to give an individual that access oh man but I, you know, I, <laughs> oh man i'll tell you if i got one of those i wouldn't get any work done i should be there all day Oh my God! This is a political podcast. It's cross-party. It's non-partisan, as far as I can, I, you know, my opinions come into it. I'll talk to everyone. I my think, God! I, you know, I think there certainly used to be something. I think called women's parliamentary radio, which was recognised. So, uh, you know, there, potentially, there is, there so I could an, be the first there is an argument podcaster to, be to get a, to get a lobby pass. Oh man, I'm going to try. You look the look on your face is that I've this is a terrible Flood idea gate, but, you're, gates are open. but you're but you're far too polite to tell me that I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Probably not the sort of person that they should have in there. Um as well as being a conservative home. And actually you mentioned Labour List there, which is a good Labour version mm. now, so I, I, it was remiss of me to, to to forget that. And of course there are things like the Canary and Squaw you know, they're very different, but there is a there is a plethora now of new online voices. Um and evolved politics is another one of those. Um you also said the Taxpayers Alliance, which has become mm. something of a fixation for many people. Um, I first remember hearing about it, I think it was up in 2004. Yes, it was. And thinking, more just in terms of the title of it. What a good idea. Well, par- partly that, but also, I'm a taxpayer, and um, we're all taxpayers. In a, you know, even if you don't pay income tax, pay VAT or you know, tax on, on, on goods. Um, who is this alliance? And... I suppose that's the question. Who's it an alliance of? Well, it is an alliance of taxpayers in the same way that the National Union of Teachers is a union of teachers, but clearly not all teachers. I, the TPA was an was a Matthew Elliott idea. Matthew and Andrew Allam and some others conceived it back in 2004. Um, because at the time, if you remember, you know, Tony Blair was obviously at the height of his powers, and Great there days. was there was a sense there was a there was a, a, a pretty considerable consensus amongst all the mainstream political parties of 
ever higher public spending, but without anyone really making the argument for lower taxes or, or just asking some of the questions about whether that money was being well spent or whether it could be better spent in other ways or whether some of it should be left in taxpayers' pockets to start with. So, I mean, the, the first project of the TPA was the, the first ever bumper book of government waste because the, 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 you know, if you can demonstrate that the money being seized from you in taxation is being spent badly, then it makes it easier to make the argument that money shouldn't be taken from you in the first place and that actually it should be left in your pocket because you could probably spend that better than the faceless bureaucrat could on your behalf, particularly if you can demonstrate that the faceless bureaucrat is spending it badly. So I think it was an incredibly positive development on the kind of Westminster think tank campaign group scene, uh, and it obviously thrives to this day. I I went in in 2011 as political director and then became chief executive at the end of 2013 and was, was in that role until uh, 2016 when we set up uh, Brexit Central. Um, and... It, the, the, it, I say it, it's it's hard to conceive now of an, a time when the taxpayers' alliance didn't exist because there are so many times where they're actually the only voice who are challenging authority, whether it be at a local, national, or for the time being European level, about how that money's being spent. What was it like for you personally, really going from journalist, and I know you joined as a director, but you were a journalist by trade and then all of a sudden you're chief exec, you're in charge of an organisation. How hard is that, or indeed how easy? Um, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot, and the, you know, the, a lot of the skills I had as a journalist I was still using as chief executive of the Taxpayers' Alliance because you know, I was on television and writing for the media on a regular basis, although you know, that kind of role also does involve you know, kind of HR issues and fundraising well, issues yes, that's as well, what I was getting which at, yeah. um, is, is, a, is a big part of that kind of role. But you know, I, I think I performed it pretty well, and, and I, I suppose one of, the, one of the fun parts of it was it's actually often forming interesting alliances, sometimes across political divides, because people often, you know, a lot of people lazily say, oh, the TPA is just a right-wing pressure group. Um, but actually, the Taxpayers' Alliance has a very strong record of holding to account right-wing administrations, whether they be in local government or, or national government. Um, for not being right-wing enough? No, for, for, no, for, for, for wasting taxpayers' money. And... Um, you no, know, I, I there was, and I would say one of my favourite moments when I was at the TPA was just before the 2015 general election, when George Osborne was uh, putting a bill through Parliament. It, w- it was a complete gimmick. I'm trying to remember the exact detail of it, but it was it was basically putting his charter for fiscal responsibility into law. Yes, it would be illegal to ever run a deficit or something. Was that the one? I th- something like that. And I'm not quite sure what the penalty was going to be yeah. were that to be done. But anyway, it was basically a gimmick. And we, we said the government ought to be kind of spending its time actually doing it rather than saying that they should be doing it. And so I put out a press release and I, I texted Ed Balls and I said, you might just want to have a look at what I've just put out. And it was I, I particularly enjoyed Ed Balls reading my press release from the dispatch box <laughs> at George Osborne. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and I, I shared a platform with the Green Party leader in opposition to HS2, which, again, I think was pretty prescient because I think public opinion on that is turning. Um, I spoke at meetings with Labour and Lib Dems against the Garden Bridge, which, again, we've seen in the news just this week again about how uh, a Conservative administration at City Hall managed to... Sp- under tens of millions of pounds of taxpayers' money on this ludicrous project. 
Um, so, yeah, I think the Taxpayers Alliance performed and still does perform a very important role. It's his funding that, that seems to get people so animated, isn't it? You know, you see it on Twitter a lot. People go, I'm sure you get it. Who funds you all the time? Why won't the Taxpayers Alliance be more open about where it raises its money from? I think organisations like the TPA owe a duty of privacy to the people who support them. I, I don't think it's for... You know, when I was at the TPA, I didn't think it was my responsibility to declare the identity of people who were supporting us. That's their, their private affair. Um, you know, and people say, oh, well, hold on, you're saying that you know, the, the government should have to be transparent about its money. Well, mm. I, I genuinely think there is a different standard to which to hold the government, which has seized money from individual taxpayers to spend on their behalf versus private individuals giving up their own free volition. And, and just, so just yesterday I saw on Twitter, you know, Oxfam were in Parliament promoting some particular political campaign of theirs. I didn't see anyone saying, Oxfam, who funds you? Yeah. It, 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 there seems a very odd... Well, some um, people will. Obviously, in, but people get more animated about people they disagree with, as we know. But would it, not, would it not make your life just... Or make the Taxpayers' Alliance life just a bit more easier to be more open about where the money comes from? Because if you donate to political parties over a certain amount in a, in a, in a year, you have to you declare who that, who that money comes from. It, it's a political campaign. You have political influence. You have very powerful people involved. Why shouldn't you? Why would you have to be declared for a political party, but not for a political organisation? Well, the Taxpayers Alliance is not a political party. It has not stood for political office. It does not intervene the in the electoral lobbyists. process. It is not part of the electoral but they process. It. And at the end of the day, you know, there are thousands of individual people. It certainly was the case when I was running. I assume it's the case now. Thousands of individual people who are supporting the Taxpayers Alliance. You know, often with quite small amounts, lots of people giving small amounts of money. Um, you know, it is it is not for for, for their privacy to be uh, invaded by telling the public that they're supporting them, particularly at a time when you see some horrific attacks on individuals on social media for having the temerity simply to support particular organisations. But if you're lobbying for a political point of view, particularly when your side are in office. It will create suspicion, right? And, and I, I'm sure it's... Who, sorry, whose side are the Taxpayers Alliance on when you say your side is in office? Well, my, Conservatives. The point, well, no, the point I've just made is that the Taxpayers Alliance is non-partisan and it holds everyone to account. Yeah, well, I, I accept that. But most of the... I mean, people who've worked there have gone on to work for the Conservative Party. It's not, it, it, it's not unfair to suggest that the CPA is a right-leaning, more conservative than it is left-leaning. I think you I mean, could, its worldview is conservative. You could say that its worldview is right of centre and that believes in, in, in lower taxes and, and lower government spending. But I say if you if you look at its record, it holds conservative administrations to account just as robustly as other I'm sure parties. it does. But it's lobbying from a conservative point of view, isn't it? It's keeping the Tories on track. I, I wouldn't use the word conservative in, in that in that respect because that is to confuse. Uh, the political parties with a with a with a world view, which is slightly different. In general, anyway, it it would just make the organisation's life easier, wouldn't it, to to say who funds it? Because it, the 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 mystery creates suspicion. I mean, look, I the, the, I think that I can tell you the suspicion is completely unfounded. You know, there are when I was running the taxpayers' alliance, there were thousands of people who who supported it, and we were obviously deeply grateful for their support, but. At a time when you see individuals being hounded for having supported 
particular political issues, and you've seen this with people who financially back the Vote Leave campaign, um, you know, the, the rules being changed retrospectively about how donations are viewed and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that that privacy is important. Uh, and, you know, pressure groups on all sides of the political spectrum with all kinds of worldview uh, play an important role in, in political life. And I say... But I note with interest that it seems to be the ones who believe in a smaller state that are hounded about this on social media and elsewhere in a way that those who believe in a bigger state and more taxes and higher spending don't get the same kind of scrutiny, bizarrely. That's probably true, and it, it probably is unfair, but I suppose um, in a Conservative government, when you have right-leaning think tanks perceived as being more influential, and you probably are, or they probably, they probably are because you're not there anymore. Um, what about some of the new pressure groups? That are, I'll, I'll tell you, actually, just on the taxpayers' alliance, one thing, I never really got terribly animated about them, the one thing that I always was, really surprised me was the stance on the royal wedding, the Kate and Wills one. Because the TBA to me was an organisation that, that campaigned for sensible use of public money, not having waste. And they defended the huge cost to the taxpayer of the royal wedding. I just thought that seemed to break with what the organisation stood for. And it would have been, I think, far braver and po- possibly more advantageous to say, actually, the public shouldn't pay for this. They're, they're wealthy enough as it is. I mean, that happened after I left. So I, I wasn't involved in the decision to take that particular point of view. I mean, I think overall, the the royal family offers pretty good value for money. I can't remember the exact amount of money it costs per person per year, but it's pretty small, and and certainly. But you could say the, that about local authorities. Once you break but, it all down, no. But, I, but my point was going to be that the amount of tourism that was attracted as a result of that event and the exposure that that came about with it. Uh, probably, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to calculate whether it outweighed the cost of it, but I, I suspect it, it, it might well have done. If not, it would have been pretty negligible. So what I was going to say. So some of these new pressure groups, could you call them pressure groups? Whatever they're... Turning Point UK is a new one that has got people going recently. Um, Charlie Kirk founded it in the USA, and this is its UK incarnation. Seen as... On the right of the right is probably a, a, a fair way to put it. They don't seem particularly near the middle. Um, is it something that you're aware of? Have they approached you at all? I mean, they haven't really done anything yet. They, they've clearly got an online presence, but I haven't seen them holding any meetings yet or, or, or saying anything particular. I mean, I, I don't know what they're going to say. Um, I think, you know, you always need to be slightly cautious about precisely, precisely replicating... Uh, a model from another country. Um, although that's not to say that there aren't important lessons that can be learned from around the world about how you campaign. I mean, you know, when I was on the Taxpayers Alliance, to go back to that, um, you know, we were a member of something called the World Taxpayers Associations, uh, which you know had a conference every couple of years where you'd meet and discuss ideas and learn from each other. Uh, and in fact, that you know, there, there were organisations created in. You know, during my time, both in Australia and New Zealand, that very much took the Taxpayers Alliance model and replicated that uh, successfully in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and we, we famously ran a 
campaign to cut beer tax, um, where we successfully persuaded George Osborne to cut beer tax for the first time in 50 years. And, Excellent. Um, we created beer mats, which were distributed around the place. And again, that was a campaign that several other taxpayer groups in other countries copied. Um, so there are lessons to be learned from groups overseas, but equally, you know, the, the UK political context is, is unique and certainly you need to be sure that you're adapting to that. I suppose it's a theme of the time, and I have mixed feelings about it, but do you think that our politics is getting angrier? I mean, you know, clearly to look on Twitter on any given day at the moment, <laughs> it seems a more angry place than it was uh, a few years ago. Um, people say, is that as a result of the referendum? Well, possibly, um, but I'm not sure what would create more anger than the efforts of a political elite to not deliver on the result that they said they would deliver. Um, you know, I get that people who were on the Remain side are upset that they lost. You know, anyone who's ever campaigned in an election that was unsuccessful uh, is going to be upset. You know, I going back to my university days, I, I knocked on a few doors wearing a blue rosette in 1997. Wow. It wasn't very successful. <laughs> uh, but, you know... You, you have a result, you yeah. lose, you, you, you accept it. Um, you know, I, th- there weren't people, you know, the day after Tony Blair did his A New Dawn Has Broken speech saying, well, perhaps we need to have a rerun because we're not sure that uh, people knew what they were voting for. Uh, and I think that, you know, the... the, the I, so I think it's unfortunate if people on the... In the Brexit context, it's unfortunate if people on the Remain side are angry at the result, but... I would say, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet if they were successful in overturning that result. I think that would create far more... But just even, even Brexit aside, just Brexit aside, in general, do you think politics is getting nastier? Or are we in danger of forgetting relatively recent history where, think, you know, the Thatcher era, which was obviously a passionate and divisive time? I mean... I mean, the way that we do politics has obviously changed because of the rise of social media and the, the the ability of anybody to get a message out there, which in one sense is a massively good thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, and the, the rise of the blogosphere during the 2000s, which I was part of at Conservative Home, was a massive positive in the democratisation of the media. Um, but clearly people also ought to be using those platforms responsibly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I first started following politics in the very, very late eighties. So I wasn't around for the kind of the heyday of the kind of Foot versus Thatcher eighty three election, which politically saw both parties, um, you know, the furthest apart the they'd been probably until now when Corbyn mm. became Labour leader, and, and certainly Thatcher and Foot, I think, had a very respectful relationship, and the parties behaved respectfully. Um, but then, you know, we currently have a shadow chancellor who has publicly called for the lynching of a female Conservative MP, which I don't think he's ever actually apologised for. Um, you know, that sends a, a pretty unfortunate message, I would suggest. Do you, do you get much of stick or abuse on Twitter? Not a huge amount. Well, that's and, good. and frankly, I've got a pretty thick skin, yeah. so I, I just kind of, you know, ignore it. And I, I, I block very few people, actually, you know, if if people gratuitously, 
swear at me or abuse me, I will block them. But there's yeah. very few people who've actually I've done that to because I do. I you know I, I I've always tried to personally be very respectful in the way that I engage politically. Uh, in fact, it reminds me, I, I, you know how Facebook does a kind of memories of X oh, years yes, ago today. Yeah. I, I, one came up a couple of days ago from when I was in York, I think three or four years ago, visiting my old university haunts. And um, a friend of mine who uh, was on the Students' Union at the time and you know, had a very different political viewpoint from me um, had written underneath that memory, oh, you know, such a shame... Um, won't get to see you. Um, you're, you're the you're the nicest person I disagree with politically. Oh, which was, what a lovely which thing was to incredibly say. sweet thing to say. And I, you know, I hope that's true. I've 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 always tried to be respectful and decent in my political disagreements with people. And I am one of those people who actually, you know, certainly tries to see the good in everybody, but also genuinely takes the view that most people in politics are in it for the right reasons. No, there are a few charlatans in all parties. <laughs> yes. And there are a few bad apples yeah. in all parties. But I think most people in politics are trying to do the best for their community, for their family, for their country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you need to engage with people respectfully um, in order to... to for, for the greater good. And because, you know, at the end of the day, um, everyone needs to be or should be pulling in the same direction for their country although dare I say it that's where in current circumstances I feel incredibly upset in a way um, in the Brexit context that there are people who are in my view actually trying to undermine the UK's negotiating position by saying we should take no deal off the table because actually the the way to secure the best deal for the country is to have that option there. And if you take that option away, you're fatally undermining the ability of the Prime Minister to get the best deal. You are, but you are also, to some extent, reassuring people. But, you know, this is the uh, this is the debate that will uh, rage perhaps beyond the 29th of March. Jonathan, it has been a pleasure to engage respectfully with you today. Um, it's been a, a real treat to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank very much. There you go, Jonathan Isabey. What a top bloke. Such a pleasure to talk to him again. I think that's probably the longest conversation he and I have ever had, but uh, hopefully the first of many. Uh, his suggestion, well, not his suggestion, actually. My suggestion based on his point about getting a lobby pass. I'm, by the way, Im- immediately, the moment we finish recording this, going to inquire about getting a lobby pass for the House of Commons. I'm a political broadcaster, technically, aren't I? Producer Days Night has just laughed at that suggestion. So it suggests that I'm perhaps not... I mean, not that I think I'm taken seriously. My point is, if bloggers can get a parliamentary lobby pass, why can't... I mean, this is an audio blog, isn't it? Of some, It's not. But you know what I mean. This is a form of political discourse. And um, I'm tying myself in knots here. I would just really want a lobby pass. So if you work for the parliamentary authorities, or you can help. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to summon the A-team. If I have a problem and you can get me a lobby pass, maybe you could... Let me have a lobby pass. That'd be very, very kind. Thank you very much. He also said something off mic, which 
I'm sure he won't mind me saying we were talking about the relationship between football and politics and he mentioned that he connected, collected Panini football albums and he said he'd always thought that there should be a House of Commons sticker book by Panini. Isn't that an amazing idea? And you could just, the thing is, you could do it every five years. I mean, I totally and fully respect that most people would not want to buy this. But if there's anyone out there that can help, that can help make this happen, maybe you design sticker books. It wouldn't have to be Panini. It could be Merlin. Or maybe you just, these days, with the printing technology people, have, we could just make our own. But, oh, man, wouldn't that be brilliant? And you could have, like, a little Labour shiny with a logo and a Tory shiny. You could do, like, a maybe, like, a, um, one where you have to make six stickers into the door of Downing Street or something like that. You could have the building. You could have Black Rod. You could have the Clarks. Wouldn't it be amazing? I think most people probably wouldn't, but then you'd have the leader and the, you know, the shadow cabinet and then backbenchers. You could organise it by select committee, by region. Oh, man. Please let someone help with this wonderful dream. So... I mean, in reality, this isn't going to happen, but it would be great. And uh, good old Jonathan Isabee. You can follow on Twitter, at Isabee. That's at I-S-A-B-Y, the editor of uh, Brexit Central. I'm going to try and get a lobby pass. And in the meantime, I'll be touring this beautiful nation of ours. I'm in Leicester on the 15th of February, which is the day this goes out. So you are leaving it very late if you live... Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. I had a lot of water and I just had a um, (laughs) Werther's original. And it just slightly... I hope that wasn't too audible. It, it wasn't a burp about It was just trapped air. Forgive me. Um, I mean, Leicester on the 15th of February, which is today on the first day this is released, and as suggested, North Allerton, Darlington, Barnard Castle, Hexham, various London dates, Stourbridge, Stafford, Cambridge, Corby, Bristol, Faversham, and loads more. Go to the website, mapfordcom slash live. And thanks to... All of you who've come to the gig so far, it's been such a thrill uh, and, and such a treat to um, to perform all over the place and, and such wonderful people. So thank you for downloading this. As always, if you can please leave an iTunes review, subscribe, tell everyone you know about it. I mean, if everyone told everyone they knew about it, by definition, everyone in the world would be listening to this podcast. Now, that should be achievable. I'll see you next week. ta This edition of The Political Party was produced by Daisy Knight.